Welcome to episode three of the Raw Autos podcast. This is a big deal. I'm uploading three days in one week. I don't know. I don't know why I think that's an accomplishment, but I think that's a pretty big deal because I just started the podcast to give everybody something to listen to during this, uh, well, interesting time, i.e., coronavirus. Uh, yeah. So, how are you liking the show so far? Yeah, I can't hear you talking. So, uh, you could send me an email at josh at rawautos.com. Tell me what you think of the show. Tell me you love me. Tell me you hate me. Tell me you love the show. You hate the show. Give me some critiques, some criticism. For week three, I have a fantastic guest lined up. It's a guy named John Pearly Huffman, who is a writer for Car and Driver. He's been a writer for Motor Trend. Uh, he started his career at Carcraft Magazine. And uh, let's see, he writes for the New York Times. And what's interesting about John is actually he worked at Kinko's. Yeah, very interesting. Except while he was working at Kinko's, he realized that he was extremely depressed, needed to get out of that situation, and that, well, he would do anything to get out of it. He loved cars. He wanted to write about cars. So he decided to create his own parody magazine of Car and Driver, calling it Car and Pearly. He sent it out to multiple magazines. And then he got job offers and 35 freelance assignments from it. Pretty interesting, right? So the the first job he actually took because of money was with Carcraft Magazine in 1990. And it's been going on ever since. So for 30 years, January of 1990 to January of 2020, he's been doing this for 30 years. I firmly believe you will enjoy the podcast because it's great. It is a long podcast. Uh, John is the type of person that uh, when you when you get him wound up, he's ready to go, which is awesome because it gives you plenty of content to listen to and it just helps pass the time away. Now, there was a little bit of a hiccup in the middle of the show. Um, I... Uh, I thought I had my uh, mixing board plugged into the wall. It also takes batteries because it's the Zoom LiveTrack L8. It also takes batteries, plug into the wall, however you want to you know, power it. You can power it from a uh, battery bank, whatever you want to do. Well, I had it plugged into a power strip, and I thought, it was, I thought the power strip was turned on. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the interview, bam, the, the recorder just stops working, shuts off. And I thought that there was a power surge at first. I was very, very confused. I'm like unplugging everything and, and John's still on the phone and I'm telling him, hang on one second, I'm unplugging everything, plugging everything back in. And I, in doing so, I turned off and on the, the um, power strip, thinking that I turned it off and back on, later realizing that, oh no, I actually turned it on because I didn't have the power strip button turned on to begin with. So this will include two cuts <laughs> of the podcast. Uh, basically, that I think it was like the first 30 or 40 minutes, whatever, of us talking. And then I will cut in the second half of that uh, conversation. Again, it's a great conversation. I really love it. I think Pearly is, is a great writer. Um, he's very entertaining, has a great voice. And, uh, yeah, I hope you very much so enjoy the podcast. Um, I would like to mention one thing, the intro and outro tracks 
of the Rodders podcast are a song called I Wish That I Was a Madman by Stefan Carlin uh, on Epidemic Sound. And uh, the intro is obviously instrumental, whereas the outro is um, not. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy uh, the music as well, because I think it's a cool song. It sounds really good. And uh, yeah, I, I believe that will be the Rodders podcast theme from now on. Um, it's been here since episode one. We're already at episode three. Mm, yeah. So anyway, oh, and also we are on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, iPad, a Mac, whatever, go and uh, go and subscribe to us, please. Rodas Podcast. I think it's pretty exciting that we're on there. Um, yeah. So anyway, without further ado, please enjoy this interview with John Perley Huffman of Car and Driver. How are you doing through all of this? Because you're a freelancer. This is tough for you. Well, the thing is, is that the state of California changed to be to, you know, 85 passed, which basically said that uh, that the companies that hired me were supposed to convert me into an employee. Now, I thought I was going to have to incorporate and, you know, start vending as a business and everything else like that, except that every company that hires me hired me as an employee. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm now an employee of CBS, an employee of Hearst, an employee of something called Ask Staffing that does with the that deals with KVB or something else like that. Or my other. <coughs> Anyhow, excuse me. You're fine. Anyhow, I'm instead, instead of being 10.99, I'm not going to be W2'd by about uh, by about five different companies. Oh my god. And and the, the good thing is is that uh, the good thing is it means I don't have to pay my self employment tax anymore. The bad thing is is that getting them to pay me has become like a real chore. So, uh, but at the same point in time, you know, the, the, because of this, at least in the state of California, and I think most places is the media is considered an essential industry and you can't, you can't discriminate media on the basis of content. So we're still going. Oh, okay. And, okay. uh, you know, cause we're still got to publish. We still got to get everything up. Nobody wants to give up their position on the internet. You still want to have a lot of content cause you don't want people to forget you're around. So, uh. I just, you know, like, I'm going to go, as soon as I get done with you, I'm going to go write someplace, and I'm going to, you know, just get it done. I'm flattered they all wanted to hire me, because, you know, they could have just said, like, well, you know, screw him. He's old, he's fat, he's a white guy, get him out. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, because, you know, relatively easy, I'm the easiest guy in the world to fire, because they just don't have to hire me again, but they keep hiring me, so I'm happy. Well, and that that goes along with something, you know, your career has been pretty varied and very entertaining. I mean, you've you've been doing this for the past, uh, what, 30 years now? And you actually have, you're, you're extremely entertaining in general. I mean, I, we don't know each other personally, but we know each other through social media and we talk and, you know, joke around and whatever, but your career is extremely interesting in that you've worked for both motor trend and car and driver, Carcraft magazine. You actually created your own satire magazine just to get hired. Yeah, that's how I did it. Well, the way I got hired was. I was uh, I got through with uh, college. I did well in school. I was going to law school, and I'm, you know, I got done with school. Had a high GPA, did really well on the LSATs. Had all my law school. I literally had all my law school applications in front of me, and said, and realized that I didn't know a single lawyer who was happy, mm-hmm. and my father. So I thought I better think about this some more, and I literally tossed all those aside, and then I wandered in the wilderness a while. And I went to work, uh, and I went to uh, grad school in communication studies at UCSB for no apparent reason. And then uh, I was working at um, 
at Kinko's, at the marketing department at Kinko's, which had its national headquarters here in Santa Barbara. It was founded here in Santa Barbara. And I'm sitting there doing all I can to work there and I'm and hating every, you know, thinking, holy shit, if I don't do something, I'm going to work in, uh, I'm going to work in the quick copy industry for the rest of my life, which at that point in time started hitting me suicidal thoughts I never had before. And uh, I, I always loved car magazines. I always loved reading car magazines. It's always been my obsession. And uh, so I said, well, I guess I'll sit down and I'll uh, get a job in the car magazine. So I wrote a 28-page parody of Car Driver. Uh, it's called Car Pearly. had all those blowing cards, and I wrote all the ads. And I wrote everything. I photographed it. I did everything else. And I said to every car magazine in the country I could find. This is pre-internet. This is 1989. So uh, I said to every, uh, you know, I went through all the registration books in the library about, you know, car publications. and found them all. I looked at everything. I just sent to everybody. And I got uh, four job offers and 35 freelance assignments, and Car and Driver bought part of it and ran it in the magazine. So I think it was pretty successful. And uh, and what I got from Car and Driver covered the cost of producing it, so I was, I was pretty happy. And uh, but the, the, the job I took was Car and, was Carcraft because that was the best job I had offered to me. That's I mean that is absolutely amazing because you basically superseded the blog world by you know. Uh, what 20 or you know about yeah 10 15 years realistically um because david e davis was was i guess one of the first you know bloggers technically when he uh helped uh, to create winding road magazine right and yeah, he's up there but when you i mean you did this just on a whim because you were like ah, screw it where we do this now because we have the internet you did it just because you wanted to do something you you were you were fed up with what you were doing already right yeah, and I'm sorry to. The, sorry. No, you're fine. You go ahead. You know, it was kind of like you know, you had I had I I didn't have any experience. You know, but the only thing I'd ever written for was my high school newspaper, and you know, I had to either you know, I either had to do something and look. The, there's, there's no great secret here. There's one great secret to to getting through life is if you solve people's problems, they'll give you money for it. <laughs> Uh, you know, and the thing is, is that what, what Car Pearly did, that was the end of my little, my parody was, I said to every car, and a lot of people said, he's going to solve our problems. And that's what it did. Because I didn't have any, you know, I had no experience that said I could solve their problems. I had something they could hold in their hands that says I could solve their problems, because I'd already published an entire magazine by myself. And I knew the genre well enough in that I was able to parody it effectively. So, uh, you know, it was, you know, I'm a, I've always been a pretty good writer. And unlike most of the people who got hired at Peterson Publishing, which is uh, where I started off and which no longer exists, even in, except for Hot Rod and Motor Trend, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the, um, you know, the, it was, you look at it and you'd go, you know, the, everybody they hired were people who were, you know, wrenches or, or motorheads. And I was, a guy, I was the first guy they hired there who they actually hired because they thought they could write. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was a little bit weird. But I've never been, you know, I've never been a rent. I've never been a guy who wants to, I don't, I don't care about, I never want to work on a car. I never want to do it. All I want to do is write about cars. And uh, my uh, heroes were people like Papadard and, you know, the usual suspects, and Brock Yates and Gray Baskerville at Hot Rod. And, uh, you know, you can just, you know, you can name all the usual suspects. They're all the guys I love reading. Uh, but most particularly, the guy I loved reading the most was Gene Shepard, which nobody even remembers, wrote for Car and Driver. But was the uh, Gene Shepard used to write for? Uh, was the guy saying who went on to write a Christmas story, which God. is you know one of 
So uh, he, was, uh, he used to be a columnist for Car Driver. And I thought, Jesus, that's the guy I want to be. I want to be Gene Shepard. And I didn't know he had a radio show. He had a radio show on the East Coast, which was hugely popular, but I was living on the West Coast. So, you know, I didn't know anything. God, it's funny because I don't think I've heard that name in a long time. Oh, my God. I, I, I completely forgot about him. I mean, not, you know, yep. no offense to him. But, no, no offense, but you, go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, I, I, you know, my, I, I had the luxury of having, you know, uh, my dad was big into cars. My older brother's eight years older than I am, was big into cars and basically taught me everything I ever wanted to know about cars. But I remember years ago, we went on some vacation somewhere. I can't remember. And it, we were in some archival place. And my brother just happened to walk into this room and they had boxes and boxes of archived car and drivers, motor trends, um, you know, road and track, even road and track before it was road and track, you know, and, um, yeah. uh, and, uh, he bought a bunch of them. And that's funny. Cause that's a name that I remember being in, in there in some of those car and drivers. And I just yeah. completely spaced. I can't, I can't believe I didn't remember that. That's so funny. Yeah. Well, gee, uh, you have to go back and look. G Shepard wrote a lot of things. G Shepard was very big in New York. This is the, the reason why G. Shepard wrote for Car and Driver was this is when Car and Driver was in New York. And when Car and Driver was in New York, it called on the literary scene in in, uh, in New York, which was actually its biggest advantage because it was getting people like uh, you know, Bruce McCall and G. Shepard and all these people came out of they didn't come out of the car world, they came out of the they came out of the publishing world in New York City. And that's why Car and Driver that's why everybody talks about you know how Car and Driver was great in the nineteen seventies. Because in the 1970s, it was barely a car magazine. It was first and foremost a, a magazine written about cars by people who were really writers. Right. Uh, you know, when, when uh, and P.J. Rourke also came aboard, too, did a lot of stuff there. And, uh, you know, the it, we don't have that. We, we've lost a lot of that in the, in the last 30 years, 40 years. And when Car and Driver moved to, to Michigan, you know, David E. wanted to go move there so he could, you know, shoot things with the shotguns and everything. I don't know he back to Michigan. But, you know, when he moved to, when he moved to Michigan, he lost, uh, he lost the connection to the New York, uh, he lost the connection to the New York literary scene. And I think that's always been the worst thing that happened to Car and Driver, even though I still think Car and Driver is the best car magazine. I still go Car and Driver is still the great. And I love everybody I work for at Car and Driver. Uh, and work with it's just that uh it's still a different it's a different it's a different pull on the magazine than it uh than what it had when it was in new york that and, was that was always my dream was to work for car and driver too always every day I, it was just something there was just something about it you know looking at the old columns and then and then reading the new reviews you know in the 90s and uh, when I was a, a an actual child in the two thousands, and but I also got to see those magazines from the seventies and the eighties, and they were they were brilliant. They're really good, and you know they they, they were, you know, the, and the magazines. I, I don't think paper's going to go away completely, but obviously the world is different now. And uh, you know, it's as you get older as I am, because I'm so much older than you are, <laughs> is that. Uh, is that you learn that you know you learn that the things that you think are permanent aren't, mm -hmm. and the thing, the world that you you know you can't. And I'm, I'm thinking about this about my kids, and this is the tough thing about raising my kids is I can't raise them for a world I know. I have to raise them for a world that is unknown. Mm -hmm. That you know, the world, the world that's going to happen as you move forward is different than the world that you're going to that, that you were raised for. 
all the assumptions that we had when we were kids, when I, and you, I think it's it may be even more profound for you because you grow because you grew up later than me. Is they don't hold, you know. Pontiac is not forever. Um, this is this is one of the you know the the institutions that seem to be here forever are going to be gone, and the, the assumptions about how the economy works that you thought were going to happen may not exist. So you know it's it's. You have to be. You have to be willing to figure out. You know. You have to be willing to grope. You have to be willing to kind of like screw around and see what you're going to do. That's what I've been doing now. You know, I'm working for. I'm working for KBB and for uh, for CBS Interactive and for people who you know, essentially for businesses that didn't exist 15 years ago. But, and, have, but have kind of taken over the landscape. Yeah, they have. You know, I, I work for a company. I work for a guy in Seattle who runs a thing called Clipnik, which is about used cars. And I, I, he's a nice guy. He's a guy starting a site about called Klipnik. And, uh, you know, and it didn't take, you know, it's not like it's a big bureaucracy. It's a guy, you know, working out of his, uh, out of his room. And Klipnik's a pretty nice little site if you, if you care about used cars. So, you know, it, it just depends. Well, and that's, that, that is a, you, you raise the perfect point is that, you know, with the, the way of the world, you have to evolve or die, you know, adapt or die. And yeah, You've adapted, you've evolved, you've been, and I guess that's, that's a testament to your, to your writing character, to your actual, uh, writing style, because I, I think that everybody I could ever talk to, uh, oh, what were you going to say? Yeah, it's something. Right. I am very special. Go on. <laughs> so, um, I think everybody that I could ever talk to about you would, would say basically the same thing that you are a, a unique, uh, specialty writer about especially when it comes to to cars you know for new car reviews or something that somebody would see uh, you know if a boss sends out something and says i need a simple review or a simple product review of this i feel like one of the first names that would come to mind for being the most interesting of that simple review would be yours thank you you know it's it's very one of the, one of the worst things about the the segment of the industry that we're in, which is the segment of the, the automotive writing industry, is that people think they're in the car business and they're not. They're in the media business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to kind of keep that in mind. That uh, you know a lot of people tend to uh, tend to think that they are somehow you know wrapped up with the the big wigs at uh, at um, at GM or Ford or something else like that, or because you get to drive new cars. You are somehow wired into the system, and you're not. You know, you are. I'm. A, I'm. We're on the outside looking in, and we always will be. And uh, you, you know, most you have to kind of like go through life. You have to go through life understanding the difference between people who are your friends, and people who are your business card to business card relationships. Mm-hmm. The people who are, you know, the people that when you the, you know, the moment you die, they lift up your business card, they insert a new person underneath it. The you know that's just a position, and all it is is when when things change. And you know they're the and they will. It's not gonna you know it, it doesn't matter. But your friends are gonna be the people you can call on any time, and there aren't that many of them. You know we tend to we tend to take friendship as something that is uh, and it's fair is sometimes we take it more lightly than the business relationships. When in fact the only thing that's real is the is the personal relationships. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, and that, that really brings up something in my mind that uh, when I first started my website, so I used to sell cars before 
I got into writing about cars and I always said I wanted to write about cars. But when I, the first grand vision I had about creating a website was that I wanted to be a, a car sales pundit of sorts, because at the end of the day, I'm writing about cars to sell you on the idea of which one you should spend your hard earned money on. And so I've always seen it as similar to you in that sense. Now I always, I, I love the relationships I have in the car industry. Of course, some of them I, I do believe are my friends, but most of them, you're absolutely right, are passing friendly acquaintances that they need to sell you on an idea, but you're friendly, you know, you don't hate each other or anything, but they realize you have a job to do and you realize that they have a job to do. And that's just, that's it. Yeah. And it's hard something, you know, I've had, I've had people who I thought were really good friends and I've had to, and I've lost them as friends in this business. And, you know, it's, it's a, it is, it's a very human thing. You know, here's the thing, you know, I always, you know, about the, telling people what to buy cars. You're talking to people. You're not talking to cars. Aren't going to read your stuff. Mm-hmm. People are going to read. So, you know, when you, when you, when people write, don't try and write it about the car, try and write about the person who's behind the car, about what makes it feel, what, how it's going to make the person feel. Because sooner or later, you know, the cars, as much as I love them, and I, and I don't really, I don't really love them as much as I, I like them, is, is that, you know, they're just big chunks of steel. And if they go away, it's a big, it, it, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, and it's because they are just, they are, you know, every one of them, you know, they, they made, very few they only made one of. And, uh, you know, as much as they could take, but, you know, if you remember, like, all the times I had it with, with my family and my truck or all the times I've been on a racetrack with a Dodge Viper or a, a thing, or if I remember hanging out at, uh, with my friends in a garage working on it, or, a, you know, these are all the moments in time that make up your life. And that's what we, you know, we tend to forget that's what we're really writing about. We're not writing about, you know, if you want to, if you write as a dry consumer advice and you do like model overviews and you do all that stuff, that you know that people tend to write. I don't know why anybody would read it. Right. The entire you know, the entire thing is, is that you know I want it, you know it's, it's, uh, you know thanks for saying the nice things about you because I'm never sure if I'm successful or not. But uh, you know I want people to have some reason to actually read what I write. I don't want them to look at it and kind of go like, oh, well that was a that was a dry lousy garbagey you know who cares uh, model overview of something that you know. I could have gotten out of the brochure, and even good brochure writing is it should be stuff that makes you relate to the humanity of your life at some point in time too. Yeah, you know, and I did I did say nice things about you simply because I do. I mean, you are one of my favorites out there. I mean, that's why I you know friended you on Facebook years ago because I was like, oh, you know, sweet. You know, I could be friends with John Burley Huffman and then just chit chat with him online, and that's also why I've you know uh, asked you to do this podcast because I think you're an interesting person. But you're to me, you're an interesting person mainly because of the writing style you have in an industry that's filled with. There, my strategic advantage as a freelancer is most other freelancers suck, and uh, you know, and the you know the thing is is that a lot of people, and also I'm a real freelancer. I'm not like a uh, you know. There's there are a lot of people who are basically between jobs who freelance. I'm mm-hmm. not between jobs job is freelancing and uh so that's you know it, it focuses your mind when you have to realize that you're going to pay your mortgage with this with, with uh, being a freelancer as opposed to well sooner or later evans is going to hire me. you know i don't yeah I, I don't 
you know, I don't want to be on staff where I have to listen to people tell me like, well, we need, we, we need to generate generic copy uh, in great huge quantities all the time. I mean, sometimes I'll do that when they hire me to do that. I don't say no to the work, but um, for the most part, people hire me because uh, I write in a better, I write better than other people do. I don't mean to blow up my own ass, but that's, uh, that's kind of like what the reason why I'm able to make a living. So that, 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 that is an interesting question for me when it comes to, to, you know, reading your stuff and talking to you. And I know that you do, um, I know that you, you do so much work and you have done so much work. How, I mean, you obviously you just said you realize that once you have to pay a mortgage, once you have to pay for kids, you're like, you know, anything go, you'll, you'll do anything in a sense, you know, but is there something you prefer? Is there something you wish that you could have gotten into or could have been involved in? I prefer doing feature stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my, the favorite stories I've written are stuff that has been like, uh, that, uh, that either takes a left turn or isn't stuff that I, that, that comes out of a press book. I mean, you know, anybody can rewrite a press release. I went to Houston, uh, after the floods, after the floods at Houston without any, I just got dropped there in the middle with Mark Urbano, the photographer, and we built a story out of it. We walked, we ran around, and we talked about all the flood cars in Houston. And, you know, we didn't know anything going in, and then we found the story. And I did to, uh, you know, these are the, you know, I, I wrote, uh, I just did a story on the parking situation, on the parking confiscation situation in Chicago. That story didn't exist. I, you know, I conjured it up out of research and, uh, and determination. And uh, those are, you know, and the, sometimes it's just like when you do something goofy. I think that, you know, I wrote a I wrote a story on the Nissan Murano Cross Cabriolet where we wrote the thing as a Greek epic poem, and uh, that worked out really well. And because it was something that you know not everybody else is going to do, nor can they do. And uh, I wrote a, I, you know, it's. The stories I like best are the ones where you do something that's got a twist on it that, or that doesn't exist except for the fact that you make the effort to make it exist. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the problems with all of automotive media and all product media, because I don't, I think this exists in the travel industry with the uh, travel writers and with travel, with computer writer, tech writers and everything else like that is, you know, you get handed the story. You get, you know, you get handed a, you get handed a, you know, like here's the press kit. Make sure all the facts to the press kit are here and get it with a perspective. And one of the things I hate most, even though I've gone on, you know, you go on these press trips, the problem with the press trips is they set the agenda for all the magazines. They set the agenda for all the outlets. They set the agenda for all the websites. Is everybody goes on these trips and then they write about the trips at the same time. And one of the things that you want to do is, at least I want to do, is not be the guy who is always on the trips always doing what everybody else is doing. Uh, you don't want to be, um, you know, I don't want to be uh, just a, I don't want to be just another interchangeable uh, component in a, in a system that is generated, that is determined and set its agenda by whatever the press trips are. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that's the worst part of the industry. Now, the good thing is, is that, um, God, I could talk a lot. But the good thing is, is that car driver gives me, you know, it gives me more opportunity than most people ever get. I mean, you know, they, they just, they just, they let me do a thing where I wrote a complete fiction about a guy who was powering his cars with apricots. <laughs> uh, you know, they don't, you know, nobody else is going to, nobody else is really eager to do that type of stuff. And car and driver, bless its heart, has been doing that stuff for 60 years. And, 
that's still, you know, it's it's an honor to be able to do it. It's an honor to be able to say that I'm, you know, that I'm on the same mask as Gene Shepard once was or Warren Wheath or, you know, or, God, even now, you know, with, with guys like Dan Punn and Eddie Alterman and, uh, and, uh, and, and, it, it, and, uh, God, and Jerry Gall and, uh, you know, all these guys I work with. And as, as soon as I, you know, as soon as I can remember her name, the, the new editor who I like quite a bit, whose name I can never remember. And, uh, which shows you how I probably should take that out. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, you know, the, um, you know, we, uh, Sharon Carty, who's a very nice lady and is very good at what she does. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to be able to be able to be up there with these people. I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I'm on the same mascot as PJ O'Rourke has been. I mean, that's, that's kind of incredible. Uh, and, uh, I don't know, I lost my train of thought, but at the same point in time, you know, I, I, all the names I just mentioned, can you name anybody who ran car, who ran Motor Trend? Can you name anybody who, uh, who, who wrote for Road Track other than Peter Egan? Uh, you know, it's, it gets, it gets thin pretty quick. I mean, I only can and, just because I think you and I can only because we're in the industry. Like we know, you know, we know it, you know, like the back of our hands in some cases. However, if I'm talking about in the nineties, when I was a kid reading car and driver in the early two thousands, when I was a teenager, or when I did read those seventies, uh, car and drivers, reading the road and tracks, reading the motor trends. No, I, I honestly, there are people I've had come up to me in North Carolina and say, Oh, I knew a guy who used to write for motor trend. And I'm like, who? And they tell me his name. And I'm like, I don't know who the hell that is, but if you were to say to me, you know, somebody's, if you were to say anybody from car and driver over the last 50, 60 years, I would know immediately, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, there, there's a real, there's a real difference in the way the industry works. There's, there's a drive to be generic. There's a drive to be changeable. There's a drive not to have anybody become bigger than the publication. You know, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, I mean, God knows, I'm so anti-brand awareness. I mean, you know, the, the, the brand, at, you know, the brand can be generic. It just means something to some people in some sort of hazy notion. The Motor Trend's car of the year, and the rest of it's kind of like a, you know, I used to work for Motor Trend, so I don't want to badmouth them too much. I'll just badmouth them just enough. <laughs> Is, uh, you know, they're, um, they are, they are where they are. I mean, they, they are just, uh, their name on an, on a, on a kind of a, as a, as a known award. But the personalities there, and God knows there are people there who I like quite a bit, uh, don't come out in the magazine, or they don't come out in the, in the media in the, in the same way. Though the, God knows, I think Johnny Lieberman is trying. Um, uh, you know, at the same at the same point in time, car and driver. I mean, I thought I really knew Papadart. I thought I really knew Brock Yates. I mm -hmm. thought I really knew these. And uh, you know, that's and that was the brand. That you know, the the brand was the people. You know, then the and, you know to a certain extent, to a, to a great extent, I hope uh, the whatever the magazine continues to do the magazine and now the website whatever else it turns into continues to do that to put people to, at, at the top. I mean, it's not just car; it's driver. The driver part matters, mm -hmm. and and the, um, I hope that's what the uh, I hope I hope that's I hope that's what continues to happen. I. I mean, God knows we're going to go through challenging times, and uh, I, I think that it's 
I hope it keeps going. You know, uh, you were talking to Alana. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Alana. Alana is a really scary good writer. She's and uh, a cool person too. Like she's actually a real like she's a she's a badass car person. Yes. Alana is somebody I admire quite a bit. Alana comes out of the same world I came out of. You know, she worked at Hot Rod and all that type of stuff. And I worked at Carcraft, so, you know, I obviously I obviously picked the better magazine, but what the hell. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, she's, uh, you know, she's starting to write for Car and Driver now. Yeah. And, and uh, the reason, the, and I'm happy about that because I want, the, I want Car and Driver to be good. And I want, it matters more to me than any other outlets. It doesn't, uh, you know, and I'm, and, that's it. You know, I've written for the New York Times. I'm good. I'm writing for the New York Times right now, and uh, you know, it's not the same feeling of personal uh, of personality that comes through, or a passion that comes at Car and Driver. You know, it's funny because I I talked to her the other day, and I told her that I was going to have you on, and she she you know sang your praises and how much she liked you, and and uh, she knew that I would have a good interview with you and and good talk with you, and it it is interesting that again. In, in our circles, your name, her name, and there are others that come up. And there are names that when you say, people go, oh, yeah, you know. Um, and and it's your name is one of those. And that's why yeah. I feel like your career with Car and Driver and everybody else. But mainly I feel like your career with Car and Driver has been so much more interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you know. And uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to look. If I was gonna, if I was hiring an all, if I was hiring an all-star team for to run a car outlet of any sort of, you know, Alana's name would be up there at the top, and Jared Gall and Dan Pond and Eddie Alterman would all be up there at the top, and uh, and but so would Mark Vaughn at Auto Week, and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so would Frank Marcus at Motor Trend, mm-hmm. and you know, and. Uh, you know, there's there, there are a bunch of guys. So Sam Smith at Road and Track. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are all guys I really admire, and uh, you know the, uh, the you know, and they all have different talents. I mean, you know, Sam is you know Sam Smith, who I don't know very well, but I know well enough to say this is that Sam Smith does the best job of putting you in the seat of a race car as anybody who writes right now does. Yeah. He he he's you know there just isn't anybody who does that better than. Uh, you know, I, uh, if you're going to, if you're going to talk about, you know, actually, uh, you know, t- talking about taking a cynical edge and having fun with something else like that, you want Dan Pond writing that. Mm-hmm. And if you want to talk about, you know, being out there with, uh, having a very human experience with playing with your dogs and old Dodges, you want a lot of, and, uh, you know, and there's a, there's a certain, there are, there are people out there and, and Mark Vaughn is just, I mean, you know, if I want, if I want somebody who's going out, who's going to hang out at a place where a whole bunch of old cars are hanging out and people are just around. I want Mark writing that because Mark's really good. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, but you know, a lot of these people, we just go, we tend to go to the generic stuff and uh, you know, I, you know, and, and I, I, I would rather have, I'd rather have stuff that's not generic. I want, I want a voice. I want people to, t- I, want, I want my pals. I want, I want Scott Oldham. I want Scott Oldham is a very good writer. Yeah. Scott, Scott spent a lot of time on, Spent a lot of time running, you know, doing administrative stuff, and that, now when he's back down, he's writing again. I was just like, "Holy shit, I forgot Scott can write." <laughs> and uh, and you know, these are or God knows, you know, you want somebody else, Stephen Cole Smith, who uh, used to who was my boss at Car and Driver, and now writes motorsports stuff for Auto Week. 
I mean, if you want somebody who's going to take you to a dirt track in Florida or a... So, you know, these... I, I, you know, uh, the, one of the things I really like is is reading other people I like, and uh, you know the, the there are plenty of them out there still worth reading. Well, and that you know you you bring up when you know talking about this, this is exactly why I wanted to write about cars because there were people that I that I read that I was like, oh man, like I want to do that, I want to be like that person. Obviously, you have to eventually find your own voice and write your own style, you know, write in your own style. But it's it is interesting because a lot of these names uh, I get asked I wouldn't say frequently but every once in a while I get asked you know who do you think is the greatest writer when people find out I write about cars they're usually like whoa what is the greatest car you've ever driven and they expect me to say some you know like oh well you know this time I got the law Ferrari to do four feet in the air off of a jump and you know they expect me to say stuff like that but I'm like yeah you know I that's not so much what I do I wish but. Um, and then they always ask me, oh, well, who are the best, who are the best car writers? And I always say the same thing. I, I, I list, you know, of course, Jeremy Clarkson, I think is a great car writer, you know, depending on what the topic is. And, and I always say, oh, well, you know, the guys that you usually think of it. And then a, about two or three dozen people that you will never, ever hear of unless you are in the world or you obsess over reading the magazine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and Sam Smith is, is, is a perfect example of that. And I remember I you know I'd been reading Sam Smith for for years off and on and I remember he he started doing the you know the the racing stuff especially I would say over the last what 5 years maybe um road kind of what you say road and track what yeah and so I I texted um Jack Baruth Jack Baruth is kind of like my barometer of hey how good is so and so behind the wheel of a car you know mm-hmm. and between him and Brian Max, a Canadian journalist and racing driver. And I asked, uh, I texted Jack and I said, Hey, how good is Sam really in the car? And he's like, yeah. Sam is exceptional. I've seen him beat guys that were actual pro racing drivers in the same car. And I'm like, wow, that's extremely impressive. He's like, no, he's good. And he is a fantastic voice, you know? Yeah. So it's, there's so many great names out there. And again, going back to car and driver, there's a creativity level there. There's there's that off-the-wall creativity that you can have a car and driver just with these weird stories. They've been doing it for the, the life of the magazine. That's what makes them great. That's what made me obsess over him as a kid. And Jared Gall, I think, is hilarious because he's like seven feet tall. And I love reading his reviews of supercars. And of cars that he shouldn't fit in, you know, mainly because I just know that he's so damn tall and I'm like, I, I want to know like how difficult or how easy it was for him, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you, you, you say excellent points because you want a list of people. Each person has their own identity for something, you know, and to put that many people in one place is like, it's, it, if I could go back and be a fly on the wall listening to, to David E or it, literally anybody else over the last 60 years with Car and Driver and just be in the room when they were talking about something or when they were going over ideas with, you know, a glass of bourbon and a, and a cigarette or a cigar in a suit, you know? Um, you know, 
I think there's a tendency, though, to, um, and I don't mean this to denigrate anybody's memory or anything else like that, but, you know, there was David E. and uh, and, and Papadarn and, uh, and everybody else and Brock Yates, and, you know, they're human beings, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they could be assholes at times. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes they make careers out of it. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, it's kind of hard to remember that, you know, we get, we tend to deify people as they, mm-hmm. as they pass and it's always sad because it is, you know, the nature of life. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that you, if you, if you do them, you know, what do they have to do that was so difficult to get out what they did and, you know, forget, forget David E as the legend, or, you know, which I'm sure that, you know, how many people know that he's a legend? It, it, you know, don't 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 take it too seriously because the truth of the matter is, is he was a guy with a job, yeah, and showed up every day, and he did what he did, and things worked out okay. And there's a certain amount of uh, he wasn't, he, you know, he, he obviously he was a talented guy, but he wasn't necessarily uh, he wasn't necessarily always nice. He could be a jerk. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't always, and he wasn't always necessarily the guy who was helping things happen. Sometimes he was an impediment to happening. Hmm. Uh, it, it's true of all of us. I don't want to make it sound like I'm being particular to Dave. I'm, uh, David, I'm just uh, saying is, is that, you know, we only see the final product right. as, as readers and everything else like that. And we, and we always, we don't have an A, B, we don't have an A, B test. We don't, you know, the world isn't like, well, if it had been this way, it would have been better because we don't, can't go back and change the world to see if it would have been better. So, you know, it's, 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 this is the way it is. You, you only have, there's only, the train only goes on one track. And we don't get to see every parallel track it could have gone down. So, you know, there, to a certain extent, uh, you know, having met all these people, having known all the people who I grew up worshiping and everything else like that, it takes the mystery out of it a little bit. And you know, you, you take away some of some of the things that you think were uh, or were le- become less impressive. At the same point in time, some other things become more impressive. And uh, I mean, I'll, uh, you want a story? I'll tell you a story. Yeah, I'd love first one. time. I, okay, first time I met Don Sherman. Oh, was, uh, yeah, yeah. Don 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 was a big hero of mine. So this is like 1991, and I got the uh, first Firebird 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 Firehawk. That SLP was building back then for car craft. That's where I get car craft. And for the first time, I go out to the to the uh, Chrysler Proving Grounds because Don Sherman, who was working for Motor Trend at that point in time, was going to help me. Uh, and which was Peterson, the same company, was going to help me test it. So I'm like, I've got to get to meet Don Sherman. Don Sherman. <laughs> so uh, I get out to the get out to the Proving Grounds, and Don Sherman pulls up in a Mitsubishi Diamante, a car which no longer exists in any sense. And uh, he pulls up and he slams the door behind him and goes, "I'm Don Sherman." Don, Don's not a man of great stature, and uh, he is a man who who kind of waddles when he walks. Nice guy. And, uh, and Don, by the way, I owe him everything. Is that uh, he? And I realize he he turns around and he realizes he just locked the keys to the Diamante inside the car. <laughs> with the car, with the car, with the engine running, and. And he gets in. He's he starts he starts he gets in there trying to fix the car. He starts pulling the door from the bottom, so he's crouched down to try and get figure out some way to get the, into the car. And his pants go down. And I'm <clears throat> standing at Chrysler, and I'm looking at Don Sherman's butt crack. <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. 
that kind of put that in perspective for me is, is that here's a guy I always wanted to meet, some guy I always wanted to work for, and now I'm staring at his ass. <laughs> so, you know, these are still, these are regular human beings. And, you know, and you don't, and you know, a lot of these things are, you know, a lot of people who are, the things that are important to us don't necessarily mean they're going to last forever. I mean, you know, these are, uh, these, these were, were, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is not going to be remembered for posterity. It's going to, it's going to fade and go away from our lives and go away from the, from the culture and the history. It, and they may be stuck in some misty, musty archive, but it's not an archive everybody's going to be looking at a lot. Right. And, um, you know, it's it's stuff to remember uh, that, you know, what we're doing for right now is for right now. And, you know, the people who are uh, the people who are here right now matter a lot. And we don't have to do anything to um, we don't have to do anything to worry about posterity. And we don't have to do anything to think about building up legends because what do they say someday even Mozart will be forgotten. And uh, be a you know, sad day. Uh, yeah, sad day, but it's still, you know, God knows I, I, I don't want to be around when Mozart is around. Uh, but yeah, at the same point in time, you know, it is it is what it is. I mean, you know, we are, uh, one, one of the things I always like to, because, you know, Russ, you, I want these things to be, I don't want, I don't want what I write to be timeless. I want what I write to be timely. Hmm, and okay. I, I want it to be one of those things where, you know, I, I want to worry about the people who are reading it right now. I don't want to think about, what's happening in the future or what's, or what, how people are going to think about it as a, as a legend or anything else. Cause I don't believe there's going to be a legend about me. <laughs> I believe, I believe in, you know, I believe in doing my job for where I am at the moment. And, uh, you know, I believe that for my kids and I believe that for my wife and I believe that is, you know, to a certain extent, you know, we tend to think about things and uh, we tend to, we all do it. I do it myself. I don't want to make it sound like I don't do it, but you know, we all tend to kind of like think of ourselves as as more permanent than we are and uh and we and that, that we that the stuff we do has weight and the only weight it has is with the moment we're in and uh you might as well appreciate the moment you're in and uh, i have this all in a six volume tape uh, <laughs> uh but you know it's a uh, it, it's it's when i when i when I, whatever writing i have whatever memorableness there is to my writing it's going to be uh you know, it's it's going to be something that is uh, that it's going to be slight at best. I mean, I think the the piece of writing I'm going to get remembered for most is my 2014 review of a Mitsubishi Mirage, which I dashed <laughs> off in, in dashed off in, four, in 45 minutes because the because the New York Times had a hold of Phil, and uh, you know that's you know they're going to it's going to be like you know on my uh, it's going to be on my grave in like a, some sort of like uh, impacted. Uh, molding thing on my classic grave thing. But, you know, that's, that, that's it. So, I mean, I, I didn't mean to wander into, full, into no. philosophical term. No, you're fine because honestly, you, you put a lot of things into perspective, you know, me being younger and obsessing, I, you know, obsess over, over the, the olden days that I never got to see or experience or understand because I was like, man, I want to do that. I want to be there when, you know, so-and-so crashed, you know, whatever car and just sit around and go, so who's calling the, uh, who's calling the car company? You know, it's like all those legendary trips that they made, they had to be annoyed with one another for the week that they were doing those crazy things. 
you know, and I oh, romanticize yeah. it because I'm like, man, I want to be a part of that crowd because we, we think of Brock Yates. We think of the movie Cannibal Run, for God's sake. We think of of the, the records that realistically nobody should be doing out on the open road. But we think, oh, man, these guys made it. They lived. They survived. And they were friends and drank with professional racing drivers, you know, the Mario Andretti's or, you know, the Phil Hills, whatever. And they hung out with all these people. And it's like, oh, my God. But you forget. You're absolutely right. They're 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 normal everyday people, you know. They are. They are. I mean, you know, it's just a, a you know, my sister's an actress, mm-hmm. and uh, my sister's a, uh, she, you know, she she's a good she, she's a she's a Tony Award winning actress. I mean, she's not a small, you know, she has a she she's had some success, and uh, you know, and but she, you know, what was her career going to be? I don't, you know, I whatever her. You know, she she can only be herself. She can't right. be, you know, she can't be Sid Charisse. She can't be, uh, she she can't be uh, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, she can only be, you know, do the best with the opportunity she gets. And you know, we tend, you know, I can't be David E. Davis. I can't be. I uh, all I can be is the opportunities I get and making the most of it. And it's one of those things where, like, you know. I always thought I wanted to be the editor of Motor Trend or the editor of Car and Driver. Well, I don't want to be the editor of either of them, really. <laughs> so uh, I, I, when I was, you know, I always thought that being the editor of Car and Driver would be a really cool thing to be. And you know, as much as I admire the editors of, Motor, of Car and Driver or Motor Trend, I didn't have any of them all because I, I know Ed Lowe at Motor Trend. I mean, I used to work for him at Sport Compact Car. Is that um, you know the um, it's just a middle management job. Mm-hmm. It's a you know it's it's a it's a herding cats kind of job. It's the least it, to a certain extent it's the least creative thing you can do, and you know it's it's because it's you know it's dealing it's, it's you're blocking you're blocking the the corporates from above from doing it, and you're making you're doing personnel decisions and writing you know and writing uh, personnel evaluations, all the things that are that come from being in middle management. And the really good jobs in in car writing are the well, is you know things like mine, where when things when when things come up and it's something interesting and you get to do something that nobody else has done, that's the best things. Get to get back to your original question, what's the best thing to do? The best thing to do is to do the stuff that nobody else has done. And, and you can think it up. Think it up yourself. Well, and I think one of the best things that you've done that nobody else has done. Um, is it, and this is something I will always remember about you. If, if somebody asked me, Hey, what was John Perley Huffman like? And I, I think the first thing that will come to mind is he had an affinity for the early 2000s Toyota Tundras like nobody else. I do. I do. <laughs> I have a, well, you know, I bought a, uh, I came back from the, uh, now we're going to talk about Tundras and I'll talk about why I like the Tundra. In 2000, well, actually, this is May of 1999, I went to the long lead for the uh, for the then new 2000 Tundra, and uh, I went back to the I landed the airplane, and about a week later, I went and I bought the first one out of the uh, Santa Barbara Toyota Santa Barbara here in town. I bought the very first one they sold, and uh, that green that green truck. And I've owned other cars. I had a, I had a Civic Si. I had other vehicles in between, but I always had the green truck. I always had the green Tundra. And uh, and uh, I put 180 thousand miles on it when my son turned 16. I gave it to him. And because uh, it's it's like it's the right size. It's 
you know, I always thought of myself as being a Ferrari or a Porsche guy, but, you know, I'm really just kind of like a Tundra guy. And that, you know, the, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me is, you know, we tend to, you know, cars express a certain amount of uh, the type of person we are and not what we, the person we choose to be. And, uh, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 15-year-old Tundra, uh, uh, just kind of like knocking around, trying to be, you know, trying, be, having, having the pretentiousness of trying to be unpretentious. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, and that's, it's always been things. So, I, my, my, I gave it to my son. My son, of course, uh, turned, uh, turned left in front of a, uh, of a Honda Fit and, uh, it put a small dent in the uh, in the uh, in the tundra and wiped out the fit. And uh, so he's fixed it, and he's still driving that car. That, that truck has two hundred thousand miles on it. But I replaced it. And I was like, what am I going to replace it with? So two years ago, I'm going like, I don't know what I'm looking. I'm looking at Honda Pilots. I'm thinking about buying a new F-150. I'm thinking about all these. I don't like the new tundras; they're too big. I like the modest tundra. I like the tundra that looks like a Camry that exploded into a pickup truck. <laughs> Uh, so I'm, I'm sitting there and, I, and I, 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 I look at Auto Trader, which is I think the way everybody looks at cars now. Is I, I looked at Auto Trader and I saw this uh, this, this Tundra with the thirty. Well, it was at that point in time, it had forty-four thousand original miles on it. So 2006, and it was at a it was at a Lexus dealership in Ontario, which is about 200 miles south of me. And I called them up and they're oh we're, we got a bunch of 14 people looking at it. We don't know what's going on. Or so anyhow. Eventually, you know, I said, "Look, okay, I'll buy it." Uh, but, you know, and we did it completely over the internet. And I bought that truck, and they delivered it up to me here in Santa Barbara. And uh, we did all the paperwork in my office. I never had to go to the dealership. It was awesome. So I kept that truck, and I'm very generous with my vehicles. My my policy on my vehicles is, is that if you want to borrow my truck, here's my truck, because I don't want to be uh, the the best thing about a truck is that it has utility to people who don't at all times, and sometimes they need the utility, and I'm not going to be – it's just a truck. Having said that, I love my trucks. So I, I take the gold truck, and my, my nephew, who I love and I want everything good for, borrowed it uh, about, last, about a month ago. And I took it to L.A. and ran it into a wall and totaled it. And I'm like, oh, geez, this is awful. This is the end of the world. And my poor truck. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about all the bad things I, I, I don't really want to see happen to my nephew. But, um, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was traumatic. And I thought, what am I going to do next? So I'm thinking, am I going to buy a Colorado or am I going to buy a Sierra? And God knows, I went to Auto Trader and I found another Tundra, 2006 <laughs> Tundra. This one with, uh, with, with, 30, with 37,000 original miles. And I bought that, and that's uh, so. This is my third Tundra, and I'm in a rut. And uh, it's just I like the vehicle because, and it, it's because it's very simple. It's the right size. I know they're not going to break. I don't. I get my Jones about new cars covered by my work. I don't need to know. You know, I don't need to have the. Uh, and I don't. And it says, it says the right things about me. It says about, you know, the, the things I want to think of myself as being, which is like unpretentious, easygoing, and all that type of stuff. All the things I like to think of myself as being, but aren't really, because really I'm just an uptight asshole. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, and that was, uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it's weird, because I think we find our spirit animals in cars sometimes. Yes. And, you know, and, you know if, you, if you ask me what my spirit animal was, I, I would like to think it was a 911 or a, F two or you know a 
a, 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 you know, like a 288 GTO, you know, some of the cars I always loved when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, my spirit animal turns out to be uh, a Toyota pickup truck. So, and even though I don't do anything like, you know, work, you know, I, I feel like it's in the front every time somebody uses my truck, you like, you know, like move lawn yard clippings or something else like that. And because, oh my God, you're using my truck as a truck. How dare you? <laughs> Uh, and, you know, it's it's you know, and you know, it, it becomes it becomes what we think of. You know, we don't really know what we are until we actually you know get out in our lives. And you know, what what do I do? I what do I do with my truck? The only excuse I have for having my truck is that I turn my dogs in it. And you know, I go out, I get my dog Alabama, and uh, you know, Bama's a great dog. He uh, it used to be when I had the green, well, I was just driving the green truck, and he was young, like he was one or two years old. He would jump into the truck, into the bed of the truck, over the tailgate while the tailgate was still up. <laughs> it was like one of those things where you'd look at it and just kind of go like, I would own the truck just to watch my dog jump into the back of it. <laughs> and uh, and so that's – and now, you know, the third one now, Bama's eight years old, and he kind of like, you know, he jumps up and he, he missed the other day. He, he like, he tried to get into the truck and he fell down and he fell, on, and he fell onto his side oh. on the back. I thought, oh, my my dog just killed himself. My, my, you know, getting into my truck, and he shook it off, and he jumped into the back of the truck. Poor and uh, you know, and you know, the thing is, is that you know, when you get right down to it, the 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 um, the, the thing I'm, the, I the I would not ha- not have anything other than a truck right now, just because the simple fact of it is, is that I just want to have something to carry my dog in. And one of the great joys of my life is watching my dog jump into the back of my truck. And that's the stupidest reason in the world to own a truck. But that's mine. No, that's not a stupid reason at all. Because that's a every car that I've had has had one mm-hmm. of my dogs in it. You know, has had. I actually sold. I had a 2008 Bullet Mustang, and yeah. I had my mom and dad had a German Shepherd. Um, now, at one point in time, I lived with my parents to help them take care of my dad's parents and my mom's dad, who all lived in like their guest house and the main house. So I helped them basically manage all these elderly people. And um, mm-hmm. so I had this 2008 Bullet Mustang. My mom had this German Shepherd who I was extremely close to. I mean, she and I did everything together, right? Everywhere I went, as soon as I opened my car door, she would jump in and she was in the back seat. you know, everywhere I went. And she died at two and a half years old of cancer. And oh, geez. Yeah, it was, it was awful. It was brutal. Uh, we spent a week with her in the hospital. She was blind and, and it, was, it was a nightmare. It was terrible. But she was an amazing dog, and she was love, just so loving and adoring up until the, the last day, and mm-hmm. the last second even. And um, I actually, I refused, uh, I had the, the Mustang for about a month, and I refused, I didn't open the trunk at all, because in the trunk was a big blanket and some of her toys that I would, because I would lay the back seats down, and I would put the, the blanket forward for her to have something comfortable to lay on, and I'd have some toys back there for her. And I didn't open up my trunk. And I sold the car. I couldn't do it. I, I could I couldn't drive that car anymore because that was it was too important, you know, the memories I had and I was like, I can't I can't have this car with these memories right now, you know. Um and now I miss it obviously because I enjoyed that car a lot. But every one of my cars has a an emotional tie for me to one of my animals, one of my dogs. And Oh, it's, it's absolutely, I totally get what you mean because it is, I love dogs. I love, I I have two dogs and a cat and all three of our pets are rescue animals that we've found, 
uh, my wife and I, and we love all of them equally. And they're all, they all have their own personalities, but it's, it's cars and, and dogs especially are a, a, a beautiful combination similar to music yeah. and cars, you know, um, you open the door, your dog jumps in and you go somewhere with your dog and it's, it's a lasting emotion and relationship you have. So your, your reasoning for you having the Tundra and, and Bama and making sure that that's your dog's truck in a sense, yeah. that, that is, a, one, that's a beautiful thing. I have two dogs and I, I have to disagree with you to this extent. I like Bama a lot more than I like my other dog. <laughs> uh, uh, Bama, we got Bama. When I, when I we chose Bama as a, he's, we think he's half husky and half Malamute because he's really big. Mm-hmm. So we, but he's more athletic than a Malamute, which tends to be kind of bottom heavy. So we think he's, and he, he looks like, and we, we bought him. We thought he was a Siberian husky until he turned out to be twice the size of a Siberian husky. <laughs> and, uh, but anyhow, um, Bama, I, when we we're looking at the at the puppies in his litter, I said, let's just take the one that looks mellowest, and that was Bama. And uh, so we took Bama, took Bama home, and and, Al, and uh, I was his name is Alabama, but everybody calls him Bama, obviously. And uh, and, and Bama was always just a, a total sweetheart, and just and the easiest, the most loving, easygoing dog in the world. Except, and another family uh, took another dog out of the litter, and they named it Duke. And they were up the street from us, so my wife would arrange play dates between the two dogs. <laughs> and Duke was psychotic. And Duke, Duke would kill their chickens and do all that Whoa. stuff that you think that, you know, Duke was a, just insane. And, of course, so more and more time, Duke was spending more and more time at our house. Eventually, Duke became our dog. I don't like Duke very much. <laughs> uh, Duke, is, Duke is kind of a jerk and uh, kind of a, and I wouldn't have named him Duke, you know, he, you know, because it's just a name that I hate for dogs because everybody names their dog Duke. But, uh, you know, Alabama is a great name for a dog, by the way. And, and, uh, so, uh, you know, the, so, you know, Duke, uh, Duke is just there and he, he hurt his leg and he can't really move very much. And he just hangs around and he just growls at you if you're trying to take away any of his toys. And he's always begging for food. And, uh, you know, no, I, you know, everybody says, oh, I love all my animals equally. And you may well, but I love Bama a lot more than I love Duke. Because I can't say this about my kids. You know, I can't say, I can't say or Jack. That would be really harsh. I can say this about my dogs. I love Alabama. Duke, I barely tolerate. And we also have a cat named Twiggy, who I think is just like the biggest, dopiest, stupidest cat in the history of mankind. She's about the size. She's about the size of my fist. And uh, I just think she's she she's she might as well not be there. She might as well be a hamster. So. You know, when it comes right down to it, I have we have three animals of which one I love, and two, one of which I yeah, kind of like, kind of am scared of, and kind of despise, which is Duke and, and Twiggy, which you know someday I know I'm going to step on and kill. So, potentially. <laughs> so I, you know, animals are, uh, are 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 an interesting topic in the way we relate to them. I did a story on uh, for Car and Driver called "Why Dogs Love Cars," and uh, you know. They are. Dogs really do love cars. Dogs are excited to be mm-hmm. in a car. They're, they're, uh, they, they, you know, they're they're ready for the adventure of what might happen next, and uh, they, they they love sucking in the world as it comes to them. There might be another another dog. They may get to meet another dog. I mean, this is all the stuff that they really get excited about. And uh, you know, I, I definitely suggest everybody who owns a vehicle of any sort ought to have a dog to go with it. 
I don't mean like in this the art of racing in the rain type of dogs type of stuff either, but because they're dogs, not because they not because they uh, not because they have some sort of insight into the world or they're or they're magical and mystical or anything else like that. Just because it's nice to have something around that is just kind of like you're a, a companion who isn't going to get mad at you when you say something stupid because I'm going to be saying some stupid things <laughs> and I want my dog. I want somebody around who's just not going to change their opinion of me because of it. It's, it's funny you say that because I couldn't agree more. And I 100% believe that, you know, no matter what your day is good, bad, indifferent, just waking up, going to sleep, whatever it is, going to the bathroom, doesn't matter. Your dog is always there with you, you know? And it's, it's those moments where it's just when life isn't going your way, your dog is there and wants to go your way, you know, and wherever you're going, they want to go. When life is totally amazing and going your way, your dog is there wanting to be in the picture. And my, I, I love our cat because our cat thinks that she's a dog. Um, so she does everything that our dogs do pretty much except walk on a leash. We've tried. She just doesn't enjoy it, but she does go out in our yard and she pees and poops with the dogs in the yard. Well, you know, there's something to be appreciated for a cat that doesn't pee or poop inside. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, you know, cats are different. I've had cats and I've had cats. I really love that. My cat gauge was this, just this great, great cat. And we had a cat. We had, we had cats. We had two cats. We had, uh, we had basically at the same time, we had uh, one named gauge, one named DeSoto named after the paramedics on emergency, which is a show from the 1970s. And uh, my, my dream was when I had two dogs, I always wanted to have a – this guy, This is going to be really old. This is old guy stuff that you aren't going to get because you were born in like 1912, 1987. 86. I don't know where Close. Yeah. So um, I had my dog. Uh, we had the – we. I always wanted to have two dogs. I wanted to name them Reed Malloy after the two cops on Adam 12. <laughs> Just because what I really wanted to do is uh, there was always a scene in Adam 12 where Sergeant McDonald, their boss, would go, Reed, boy. And, the, and the, the two cops would come up to them. And I always wanted to be able to read, boy, and have my, cop, my dogs come up to me. That's the way I think in the world. And uh, so, you know, some point, but we anyhow, our, our cats were named Gage and DeSoto after the paramedics on emergency. And uh, because my wife uh, was the president of the Randy Mantooth fan club when she was a kid with Randy Mantooth <laughs> on emergency. And the thing is, this is always weird, is Randy Mantooth, who went to the same high school I went to, uh, is now lives about four blocks from us here in Santa Barbara. So it's like, you know, my wife who grew my wife grew up in Gulf Shores, Alabama. So the world works in mysterious ways. <laughs> and the reason, the reason why my dog's name is Alabama is because that's my wife's, you know, that's, that's my wife's heritage. She's from Alabama. Oh. And, and, uh, so, and, and Alabama is just you know, a great name for a dog. I can't, I, you know, I, I suggest that people always think about, uh, they're going to be naming their dogs, name them after a really good football team. <laughs> so my dogs and my cat, uh, our oldest dog is half Siberian Husky, half Jack Russell Terrier. Very, very oh my God. yeah. Right. Very odd combination. Um, but she's about 50 pounds and her name is Luna. She's six. Um, our other dog is a border collie named Carlin after George Carlin, my favorite comedian. Good name for a dog. I agree. I agree. Uh, even though it's a female dog and, you know, George Carlin is a, you know, a man, but that's okay. It's okay. Um, and then uh, our cat is named Ollie, O-L-Y, after Olympic weightlifting because of my wife. 
That's I, I named her that. Well, actually, I didn't name her that. A friend of ours said you should call her Ollie because of your affinity for Olympic weightlifting. That's what that's what they said. Great so. names. Interesting names. Yeah, I mean Luna is, you know, is Moon, obviously. Um right. my my mom is very Catholic, so she names all of her dogs Mary something. Um oh, that's- so, <laughs> so the dog that passed the German Shepherd that we had that passed away at two and a half. Uh her name was Mary Grace, and her two current dogs right now are sisters from the same litter named Mary Catherine and Mary Elizabeth. <laughs> running a convent for dogs yes literally literally 100% it's just it's just a giant convent for just of German shepherds it's all um yeah so you know kind of getting back to to some other car stuff I have I have an interesting question for you because you oh and actually first off before that one of my favorite pictures I think you've ever posted on social media if I recall correctly it was Bama laying in your what it was like a brown recliner chair and this is a number of years ago. Yeah. He still has the chair. He still, still lies on <laughs> it's still It's one of my favorite pictures because his head is like hanging over the armrest. Very adorable. Um, but my one of the questions I have for you is that you told me that in July of 93, talking to a GM engineer about the next Corvette, which would be the C5 Corvette at that time, you accurately accidentally guessed basically how the car would be laid out how the hell did you really do that i mean i know i understand now we look back and go oh that was a logical decision but at the time how logical was it really to think that way well it's here's things everybody everybody seems to forget that um at that time general motors owned lotus Mm -hmm. and lotus built all its cars almost exactly the same way i mean like the you know the elan and Mm -hmm. the uh and uh uh, you know, you, you, the, the elite, all of you look at them, they, basically what they did was they, and they did, and they engineered the DeLorean the same way too, which is this, that you build a backbone, as you know, you have a strong center, center console, center section of the frame going back, and then you have a Y at the back, and either you insert the engine back there if it's a mid-engine car, or you would put in a, the suspension back there if it's a front engine car, and I thought, you know, the logic, it's a very efficient way because it's a very lightweight, lightweight way of building a car. And uh, I thought, you know, if you look at the way Lotus builds cars, you know, look about what's coming up with the Corvette. And the Corvette is basically uh, the next Corvette that's coming. Remember, they both, until the C8, all, all Corvettes were built essentially the same way, including the C5, which is a modified version of this, but all Corvettes were built off of a ladder frame. Mm-hmm. So, you had frame rails on either side, and then you know you had supports in between. You put the engine in there. Very simple. The way they built the, it's the same way they built the Model T, and they built every car up until up until then. And I thought to myself, you know what you really need to do is you need to. And I thought that the base the basic thing would be to uh, to basically just kind of come up with a would be use a, a backbone frame because it's lighter weight. And if you're going to do that, you're going to end up with space at the back. So you might as well move the transmission to the back because that was like a 928. And uh, I and I I thought, said I guessed it. I just said I think that's the way you guys should build the next car. And he said, "How did you know that's what we were doing?" And this is 1993, so this is like before the car came out. And I suddenly he just handed me um, essentially a uh, he handed me the the, the 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 C5 on a platter. So I called up Jeff uh, Jeff Carr, who was the editor of Motor Trend at that time, who I knew. I said, "Look." I can I can do I can I can write you a story on what the next Corvette is and be accurate. 
And uh, he goes, well, when can you have it? I said, I'll have it for you tomorrow morning. And I wrote it that night. And, uh, uh, you know, I didn't have my name on it because uh, I didn't want to find have any way of tracing it back to the uh, GM engineer uh, and, uh, who, and who was there and who, who told me it. And uh, they uh, – and, and, uh, but that's how I got – that's the first thing I wrote for Motor Trend. And the first thing I wrote in the new car magazine was I told the world what the C5 Corvette was going to be. So, and once you drove the C5 Corvette, did you like it? I like the C5 Corvette quite a bit. I think the interior is an atrocious pile of crap. <laughs> but the but the car, you know, and if you have guys right now who are going like uh, you know Jim Conna courses or Ultimate Streetcar Competitions and everything else, the C5 is hugely popular with mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. Incredibly cheap. You get you can buy a C5 for like five grand. It's it's rebuildable, mm-hmm. which for a for a race car is fine because that's all you're gonna do is rebuild it into a race car, and, you know. and the C the C5s are cheap. They're they're really robust. You, you know you can ram them into walls so they won't total out like my Tundra. <laughs> and uh, they uh you know they are um, and and they're they're cool because they're also the last Corvette with hidden headlights, which I think still think is something they ought to bring back because I think hidden headlights were cool. And uh, but um, yeah, I, was, I like the C5 quite a bit, and I think the LS and I think the LS1, which was the first you know first 5.7 liter. LS engine in there is really, you know, the LS is a wonderful engine, and I just think that the LS one was the great start to it. So yeah, I think the C five was great, but that's how I, that's how I, uh, you know, that's uh, that's how I uh, that's how I got into the new car books is because I, you know, I, I was actually smart enough to make a wild ass guess and be right and happen to be next to an uh, and happen to be next to a GM engineer while I was doing it, the right GM engineer. Yeah, the right person who, who was who, who was like, wait, what? How did you know? Instead of playing dumb, yeah, yeah instead of yeah. playing dumb, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's it's a, but it was a wild, it was a wild ass guess. It wasn't, a, you know, I, I thought if you look at the, if you look at the logic of it, it it's kind of self aware, self apparent now, right? Because that's how five C six and C seven, but uh, you know, but back then it was a, uh, you know, who knew what was going to be? Remember the C four, in nineteen ninety three, the C four had already been around for like ten years, right? So. You know, it was it was getting pretty long in tooth, and uh, you know, but I, I'm very proud about that guess, which basically, uh, you know, built my career. It was Off great. One stupid. It was such a great stupid. guess. It's hilarious. But it is, it's it's true. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I wish I could say I guessed a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of these things that are hard are pretty straightforward to predict. I mean, you know, but. That one was a, you know, that was a pretty big leap to go for the transaxle and the uh, and the frame. And if you look at it, and you know, and remember, it's not, you know, the C5 isn't a pure, purely Lotus frame, you know, the, the because it has side rails, which Lotus often didn't use. I mean, Lotuses are really flimsy cars, mm-hmm. and uh, it was more robust than. But you know, it, it was it, it made a certain amount. It made a certain amount of sense. And also remember that Lotus had done the engineering work on the uh, on the LT5, the four cam engine. Right. That. Uh, that, uh, that went into the that went into the, the Corvette and the ZR1, well, which is one of those. Yeah, go well, on. I'm sorry. Which is one of those car, which is one of those cars that uh, I really like too. I really of, of cars. If I, if I if I wanted to have a car in my dream garage, which means I'll never have it because I don't want to actually have to maintain it or anything else like that, <laughs> is that I would love to have a C4 Corvette in it, a C4 ZR1 Corvette, which I think is really just a great car. It's and it's funny, you know, because you know we talk about Lotus and GM owning Lotus at that time, and you know with the C5 and then the C4 ZR1 and you know the the engine that they that they actually did form, and also 
they also Lotus uh, handled the suspension. You know, they they created the Magnaride suspension for General Motors, and now it's talked about as it. It does make me laugh when I when I listen to, especially my dad, who's a big GM guy, loves Corvettes, mm-hmm. has had every Corvette underneath the sun, has a C8 coming to him at some point now, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I do chuckle because for years he would talk about oh General Motors with the advancement in magnetic ride you know with with uh in their engineering ingenuity no other company could do this and i was like they didn't even do it it was lotus what the hell are you talking about so we used to get in fights about that um well lotus was actually very valuable i, I think selling lotus was a mistake for you but then again I agree if, if they held if they held on to lotus and then they went through the bankruptcy lotus would be dead now instead of the barely surviving on the respirator thing it is today yeah um, yeah so- it's it's uh it's it's there's good and bad with it, but you know GM GM is very capable of doing things that are surprisingly good. I mean the uh, what they did do is by themselves was the LS series of V8 engines, which are you know because they're pushrod engines, people tend to dismiss as being primitive in some way or another. They're incredibly compact. They make an amazing amount of power for how much for their size. They don't weigh very much, and you can you know it's and they're and they and they're brutally. I mean they're just robust. They don't break. Right. So, you know, I, the, it, you know, when you think about it, it's you know, it's Jim, Jim is capable of really great things when they put their minds to it. So is Ford, maybe Chrysler too. So, uh, you know, they're they're you know, we tend to, I mean, we go through the current crisis right now and what's going on with Ford and GM and all trying to build respirators or anything else like that. These guys, you know, the one thing you do is when you meet all the people, is these are they, these companies are no matter what their bureaucracy is, no matter what is holding them back, or whatever else is. It's filled with really smart engineers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who, given the, given the freedom, can really achieve something great. And you know, you take a look at the C8 Corvette. The C8 Corvette is, it's it's essentially a Lamborghini for one fifth the price. Right. And uh, and you know when you get right when you get right down to it, the only company that could do that was the only two companies. There are only only two companies that could do that, and that's GM and Ford. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Ford Ford decided to build the GT, which is a you know four hundred thousand dollar machine. Because, but Ford, if it wanted to, it could build a sixty thousand dollars sports car just the same way that GM. Well, and, and I, 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 okay. Oh, I was just gonna say. I mean, go if you look at what they did with uh, how they. I think they thought outside the box when they created the GT three fifty when they redid it. Now, granted, I'm biased because I have a twenty seventeen GT three fifty as my daily, and yeah. I feel as though that that car is radically different from what General Motors were doing with the Camaro, especially with the ZL1 and stuff like that. Um, but I, you know, having driven all the Corvettes, all the Camaros, all that stuff, the reason why I went to the GT350 was I just didn't, I just couldn't find personally for me another car at 60 grand that felt the way it did for my personality, for my personal, what I wanted to drive every day, you know? Well, you know, the, the big thing that's interesting is, is that the, you know, we talk about Camaro development and Mustang development, and I always think that Ford starts with the base Mustang and then builds its performance vision. Yes. And then what happens with GM is GM starts with like a, a ZL1 and then builds the cheaper versions down from there. Right. And where this, and um, I, I, it's very much, it's very much reflects a cultural thing. And I think the big, the major problem GM did with the, with the latest court, latest Camaro, which works wonderfully. I mean, it's just a wonderful car to drive mm-hmm. is they made a couple of mistakes. One, they made it look like a 69 Camaro 
again. <laughs> right. And, and uh, then they also, um, they also, you can't see out of the damn thing. Right. Which is, which is a you know a really a major a major difference. But because Ford started off with the the base car and said, well, we got to make sure that, you know. For the for the use, God knows, I'll say something like for the the women who drive, which is going to just get me in so much trouble. So I didn't say that. <laughs> uh, but you know, because it's got to be something that people want to drive every day, and we're going to sell a lot of these with four cylinders and six cylinder engines. It's got to be something that you know that every that anybody can get into and not feel intimidated by and be able to see out of. It's a better car as a GT350. And the other thing about the GT350 is, is that you know, look. In the history of mankind, there are, there are certain great ideas, you know, democracy. Um, there are the the idea of the per, you know the individuality of the and, the and reason for the individual, the the dignity of the individual, and of course the flat plane crane. And uh, you know that car, if nothing else, sounds spectacular, doesn't it? Oh and don't yeah. You just, and don't you just want to get in that car and like every day drive it and feel like the guy going like, you know, there's some guy at, at Ford who said to themselves like. Let's put a flat plane crank in this bitch and really make it sound bitchy. And and somebody else afford going, no, we can't do that. Come on, that's not... and then somebody says, well, let's give it a try. Okay, let's give it a try. And you know, somebody there said, you know, mocked up the crank and they generated it out of the thing. They got out there, and some guys out at Ford said, you know, we're sitting there on the test track going, why are we wasting all this money on the on this engine? This is just. And then it came roaring by, and they go like, holy shit, let's do that. That sounds bitching. Right. And and uh, and you know and. And, you know, it's, I mean, it, it's, that car gets bought by people who never knew, heard the term flat plane crank and now worship at the church of flat plane crank <laughs> uh, because it sounds so wicked cool. And, and at the same point in time, it's a very usable car every day. So, I, so 13 and a half cubic feet of trunk space is 0.4 larger than an E class sedan, it's a 13.1 cubic foot trunk. And so I had this argument with, or not argument, but a conversation with my buddy, Tom, my buddy, Tom has a ton of money. He, at one point in time, he had a four, five, eight Italia. Uh, he just sold his, uh, um, his Lamborghini Huracan. You know, he, he, he now has to have the exotics because it's like for him, nothing else really matters because he's seen the top of the hill. You know, he wants the top every time. And I told him that he was not man enough to go buy a GT350 or a GT500 and enjoy the hell out of it. And he said, why would I do that? I don't like Mustangs. And I said, these aren't, these aren't Mustangs, Mustangs. These aren't what you would normally think of. And I said, the, the thing is, at some point in driving your Ferrari or your Lamborghini or your high-end exotic that you have, you're going to feel stupid. Because it's going to make you feel like you're not good enough behind the wheel of it. And, mm-hmm. I, and I said, every day I drive my GT350, whether it's rain or shine, hot or cold, I feel like a hero just starting it up and going through the gears myself. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel good and it makes me feel like I have so much control. And, and it's, let's be real here. It is faster than what anybody feasibly needs on a daily basis. It is much faster. Right. And it sounds like you said, it sounds bitching. I mean, it sounds like the sixties all over again. No, it doesn't. It sounds better than the sixties. <laughs> uh, 
But don't, don't uh, you know, you weren't there, but, you know, I'm just old enough to have spent some time in the 60s. Is, is that, you know, the, um, the 60s, uh, the cars, muscle cars sucked. They were piles of crap. <laughs> they were turds. And really turds. They're not that fast. They're, they're loud, but they didn't make it sound that good. What it sounds like is a three five. Is it sounds like it's a three fifty five Ferrari three fifty five. Oh yeah. Uh, which was which was also a flat plane crank car, or it sounds like an Indy car, which was mm-hmm. a you know we did you know the the V eight Indy cars from the uh, from the they were turbocharged, but from the, from the nineties, which I thought were always bitching. These are all you know these are nine thousand RPM cars that uh, you know the, the you know, Pontiac. A Pontiac 455 is, you know, it produces peak torque at 2 RPM and then falls off from there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you don't want, you don't want that. There, you know, there, there, you know this, the, uh, the, the, the GT350 engine, uh, it's called Voodoo, if I remember correctly. Yes, it is. Is is, uh, is is far better than anything they produced in the 1960s. So much better than they produced. Having said that, I wish it looked like a 1969 Boss 302. Oh, um, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, but you know, at the same point in time, you know, we, we tend to you know, thing, I always look at every time I look at these nineteen sixties bustle cars, and it's just, I mean, I, I, they're appalling garbage. I mean, they have panel gaps that are, are they're so wildly inconsistent. They have paint that's blotchy if it's original paint at all. Um, they creak every time you open a door. Uh, the seats are terrible. Um, you know, the reason why. The reason why, uh, well, you know, if you take somebody like Mark Stilo, who is another GM and engineer, and not the guy who told me about the, uh, not the guy who told me about the Corvette, Mark, uh, Mark builds '69 Camaros in his spare time. He builds great '69 Camaros, fantastic cars. They built perform like Ferraris, and uh, the reason why he can do that is because, you know, there's so much to fix in a '69 Camaro that he can, mm. you know, then fix it. That he can do that, but stock. Oh my God, they're terrible. They're just terrible. And we worship, and people worship them. Like, are you insane? They're, you know, these are. Yeah, you know, this is this is this is this is my. I'm gonna go on a diatribe here because I don't have anything else better to do at the moment. Is is the uh, the the 1960s, which people and I and I'm a victim of this because I collect Hot Wheels because I've been you know collecting Hot Wheels since I was six years old because I was a victim of this. The thing that we forget about muscle cars is. They're really marketing exercises. You know, this is a the 1960s is when uh, the the companies realized that the large cohort of population, the baby boomers, going through the 60s, who needed to want cars, and they had to appeal to young people, and they didn't want to spend any money building actually good cars. So they put paint type stripes on their on whatever they have, or they came up with a Mustang, which is basically a Falcon, and uh, you know they they did whatever they could to get people excited about cars that were very ordinary. And in some ways, you know, they, they put big engines, which are still the big, dumb, stupid engines they were putting in their full-size cars, into smaller cars to create these muscle cars. But the marketing was intense. The marketing was insane. It was on TV all the time. It was on uh, all the, the, all these great ads came out in the magazines and in the newspapers. It was all aimed at youth, at the young people. And, you know, these are the people who are buying them now, which have kept the prices up. But this is a lot, you know, baby boomers suck. And I'm kind of like a tail end baby <laughs> Uh, and the thing is, is that, you know, here I was, I was six years old, seven years old. I was looking at all this advertising. I was looking at all this marketing. And that sucked me into the car world. And that sucked me, especially when Mattel came out with Hot Wheels in 68. You know, and I was right there. I was, you know, I was prime marketing age for Hot Wheels. And Mattel just completely hooked me, totally hooked me. And, uh, you know, I'm still, I, I'm looking at my 
4,000 Hot Wheels sitting in the corner over here. And uh, in a bunch of buckets and boxes and everything else like that. And, uh, you know, and the, the reason is Hot Wheels led the car craft, which led the car and driver, which led to me being here talking to you. And it's the marketing, but it's the marketing it's the, the, the makes, uh, that made uh, muscle cars what they are. And we're still subject to it. And uh, we tend to we tend to think that the the automotive culture is something that's spontaneous or rises everything else like that. This is a big business, and the big business isn't selling cars. And that the business of selling cars, in a large part, determines how the culture exists. So, your point leads me to a question that I've given mm-hmm. to everybody that's that's so far done the podcast. And okay. I, the question is, what worries you most about this crisis regarding the automotive industry? Worries me most. First of all, I'm not that worried about the automotive industry. I think that the, I think the interesting thing about this crisis is, if there's anything this crisis does, it makes public transportation look pretty stupid. Uh, because you know the reason why New York is so affected is because they stack people up and they put them in subway cars. And, uh, you know, I think having a 3,000-pound isolation chamber looks pretty good right about now. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I, I think, relatively speaking, people want cars, and I think they're going to come back to cars. I don't think they're going to – I mean, whether they're electric-powered or anything else like that. Uh, I don't know what they're going to be in the future as far as technology goes. I think there's going to be a large mix of them, and I don't think internal combustion is going away tomorrow. Um, having said that, is that, you know, I think that the big challenge right now is, is that people are going to like the way they're buying cars now. There are not very many people. Lincoln just, I'm writing a story, literally writing this story right now. Lincoln has an ad out right now about uh, buying your car remotely and having it delivered to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going to postpone the payments for four, for three or four months. I don't remember it here. So you don't have to make your first payment until July. And, you know, relatively speaking, that's a lot better. In, in the last two, in the, you know, the, when I bought my Tundra, I didn't, I didn't have to go into a dealership. And I think the big, big, big thing that's coming right now is I think people are going to try and figure out how do I not go into a dealership to buy this car? How do customers take control of the situation by sitting at their computers and buying their cars virtually and never having to be in an F&I guy's office being pressured by formats and, and the uh, crew code? And, uh, you know, I think that the, the, this crisis that we're going through right now is is really going to change a lot of the ways that people expect to convert to uh, to do to do uh, all sorts of commerce in the United States, all sorts of commerce in the, in the rest of the world, the whole world, which is like, why am I going to stores to buy this when I can have it delivered to me? And I don't. I think that's going to affect. I think that's going to affect the car business as much as it's going to, maybe even more so than a lot of other businesses. So I'm not worried about the car business. You <laughs> said something that so in 2007, at the tail end of 2007, is when I sold cars, right? And so I saw kind of saw the writing on the wall with regards to what we were doing, uh, selling cars where we were, uh, uh, my manager had a friend who was a a manager of Wachovia at the time before it was Wells Fargo. Um, and he would call him up and say, Hey, I, this person has terrible credit. They can't buy a car, but I want you to buy, I want you to buy their, uh, buy them anyway, because that way we can repossess the car in a month or two. And so I saw that, you know, firsthand. And I was like, this is crazy, crazy stuff. And 
so then I, I basically everybody chuckled at me. They thought I was crazy because I said, look, in in 10 years, 10, 15 years, we're going to be buying cars online. People, people are going to be having cars delivered to their houses, not because they called on a phone, but because they have an Internet connection and they're going on Amazon, you know, and I got laughed at by everybody. Everybody thought I was a total idiot, you know, for saying that. But I'm like, it's it's happening. It's going to happen. You guys are terrible human beings. <laughs> people think that they're afraid of you. They don't trust you. So why would they come in here to talk to you if they don't have to? Um, well, the thing is, let me interrupt Josh. No, you're fine. Anyhow, the thing that this, that the, uh, this is already happening in used cars. It's going to happen in used cars first. Remember, the used cars market is vastly larger than the new car market. Mm-hmm. Even though our car market is still like, we're still at seven, I don't know what we're going to be this year. We're going to probably do like 13 million units, but it's still like 17 million units until this, until this thing happens. Is that you know um, why would not why would you start your search for a new car any place except Auto Trader? Right. I mean, used car. I mean, you know, it's the used car market is, you know, everything else. You know, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a you're gonna have like a link to a Carfax report. There's gonna be photos there, and you don't have to go driving around looking for what you want. You don't have to make phone calls. You don't have to deal with people. And the we already have things like Carvana and uh, all these other. Coming up, I mean, the used car market is going to be essentially, as far as I can tell, and I will, you know, you can ask somebody, you know, you can ask a bunch of other people, like, you know, Steve over his last name. I'm going to remember. Stephen Stephen Lang. Uh, yeah, Stephen Lang. You got Steve. Steve, you know, and God knows Steve is, is such a used car dealer. And uh, the but the truth of the matter is, is that you know, for most people who are trying to buy quality used cars, as opposed to people who are you know, credit challenge, you'd have to buy a thousand dollar beater. Mm-hmm. Um, the used cars are going to be, it's going to be completely an online experience for most people. Most of the time, Very, but I think it is now. I think, I think it has been for me for the last two, the last two Tundras I bought, you know, were both used and the, uh, the Tundra, you know, the, I, the, the Tundra, I bought the black one I have now. I bought, uh, I found in Ontario, ironically, the same place, this, the, the green the gold one came from. And uh, but it was owned by a teacher who had had it in storage for eight years, and uh, you know, and which I thought was a you know a, a miracle that I found this thing. But I never dealt with a dealer. Uh, I never dealt with, except for Steve, who I asked advice on. And uh, and you know I it, and uh, you know the the it was it was never it was never a dealership experience. I mean, why would I go through? I found it on Auto Trader, and Auto Trader lets you quote, lets you search by the terms that you matter. I searched for two thousand to two thousand six Tundras, and I searched by lowest mileage first. Right. And and this one came. You know, there's a tw- there's a one on there's one on uh, Auto Trader right now that only has twenty thousand miles on it. And uh, you know, it's two thousand miles away from my house. This one was only you know, like one hundred eighty miles away from my house, and. Uh, you know, the used car market is going to determine where the new car, car car market goes. Everybody starts off as a used car buyer in the market. Virtually everybody starts off as a used car buyer. Mm-hmm. And experience is going to be, as the generations go on, is people are going to start off as buying things online. They're going to get used to buying things online. And dealerships aren't going to have any choice but to be on. And they already are. Dealerships, the one thing you find out about car dealers is they may be evil and they may be scummy, but they're not stupid. No. And. And uh, you know, and they're they're just they they they're gonna go wherever they're wherever they can find buyers. And the buyers right now 
are sitting at computers. They're not wandering from lot to lot to stumbling into being predatory into buying a Dodge Daytona. So, <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's, I think it's the big thing that's coming out of this. Everybody is sitting, you know, I'm, I mean, I, 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 I think everybody, everybody's who I know, it's maybe true in North Carolina. I don't know. I'm sure it's, everybody I know is saying to themselves, who are the people who are the heroes out of this? And who are the people? Amazon guys, the Amazon delivery guys, the FedEx guys, right. the guys at Walmart, uh, the truck drivers who are getting everything there. Nobody's saying to themselves, you know what I really miss is the retail experience. Nobody misses the retail experience. Everybody wants to be able is wants stuff that's going to get delivered to them. It's going to be easy for them, and that they don't have to, and that they can keep the their thing going. And but you know, I, there's going to be a lot of things that are coming. There's a I wrote a story. Uh, there's an economist at George Mason University who basically said for a lot of people, uh, his name is Tyler Harden. I don't, okay, but I can't remember what his name is. But he wrote a he wrote a story on. Uh, and this is at ride.tech, if you just buy my stories at ride.tech about this. So please read it. But the uh, thing is, is that um, he said that for a lot of people, this is World War II. This is, a, this is going to be a formative experience. This is going to change a lot of the way they see the world, mm-hmm. especially for my kids who are 17 and 18 years old, or 18 and 19, whatever they are at the moment, 17 and 19. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is going to be, they're, they're not going to see the world as a, they're not, they're not going to see car dealers or um, supermarkets or anything else in the same way anymore. They're just, it's just, or even restaurants. I mean, this is going to be uh, very much where I don't think restaurants are going to disappear, but it's very much going to be a takeout culture. It's more and more going to be a takeout culture than oh, it has yeah. been until now. And, uh, and I think people are going to like the takeout culture. I think the thing is, is that, and I think the takeout culture that comes with car buying is going to be something people actually like. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think people have, you know, are, I don't think people are going to put up with this bullshit anymore. They don't have to. So, you know, I can buy, I can buy a Toyota Tundra out of a Lexus dealer 200 miles away, never go to the Lexus, never go to the Lexus dealer, have the guys drive it up to me, have sign all the paperwork in my office, and then he takes an Uber back to Ontario. That's exactly what happened for me. And I know that that's what's happening for a lot of people right now. And I know a lot of people are, are like Lincoln are recognizing the change and they have to push the car with, because they can't have people going into the showroom. They're saying like, look, call us, you know, take a look at us, our website, buy it online. We'll drive the car up to you and deliver it to you. That's an amazing, that's an amazing change. It is. And I, so I've been saying lately that the two things that I thought would, would be very important are going to be, I felt as though the classic car market, um, would be very interesting because there's going to be a lot of classic cars that I feel like have very superficial values are going to either fall through the floor or rise exponentially depending on the car it is. Um, because you know, some of these cars, they were made in the tens to hundreds of thousands to millions of cars, but they're astronomically priced for no reason whatsoever. You know, Trans Am. 19. So my dad had a 1969 Trans Am clone and he made that clone and it's probably worth you know 70 grand just as a clone which is 69 which is crazy they made 80,000 or something trans ams in 1979 and people are paying money for those right 77 to 70 you know it's like you know they're slow they're garbage (laughs) they're great looking and uh and you know that that market 
the big change in the classic car market that I see is I think bring a trailer has become the classic car market. Yes. Or it's becoming the it's the, uh, it's the uh, online Barrett Jackson is what I call it. Yeah, but Barrett Jackson, you know, Barrett Jackson is for people who want to show off in Hawaiian shirts and big watches. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, you know, this is not Barrett Jackson. Bring a trailer is, you know, bring a trailer. It, it's weird that you have, like, you, you know, you, you know that I'm a Facebook enthusiast. <laughs> yes. Because, because I'm an old guy. And uh, therefore, I like Facebook in my AOL, in my AOL uh, email address. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is, is, what you find out is, is that, you know, you can share a lot more community with like-minded people by saying, like, look at what I saw on Bring a Trailer. Right. And sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and everything else. Then you can, if you show up at, at uh, if you show up amongst the big crowd at, uh, at uh, Barrett Jackson, which 80% of the people are just morons with money. Yep. And, and uh, you know, you can, uh, and, and, you, and you can go there and, and have more, you have more, you have more connection through with the online thing than you ever did in real life in some, at some level for things that are, you know, you can't hit critical mass. You can't hit critical mass the same on, on things on a subject like classic cars or old cars or stupid cars or all the things I love. You can't hit the same critical mass that you can online. You can't do that in real life as easily. You can't, you can't find enough. You can't find enough like-minded souls unless you have the chance to share it online. Absolutely. And, I'm not going to go, I can't, you know, I can't go down to the coffee shop and expect everybody in the coffee shop is going to care about the 1980 Chrysler New Yorker ad I just posted. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but at any point in time, I can put it online, and I have, and I've, you know, I have almost 4,000 friends on Facebook, and I know that uh, you know 40 or 50 of them are going to say are going to like it, and about 10 of them are going to say something. Right. And and uh, you know, and that's. Uh, and you know this is the, this is the, this is going to change the nature. Of, there's good and bad about how the world has changed. I mean, you know, sharing something as benign as automotive enthusiasm is great. It's wonderful. It's 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 the thing I love most about Facebook. But I also I also you know I'll also I'll also stupidly argue politics with people who shouldn't be arguing politics. But um, you know, it also enables people who are uh, who do dangerous things to hook up you know i don't think pedophiles should be allowed to know any other pedophile yes. and uh right. and so you know it's uh it's 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 two things is you know we can it can normalize really bad behavior which is bad but it can also really ex really exaggerate and, and increase the the increase the um increase the 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 effective reach of sharing enthusiasm which i think is great in well, everything i mean you know, that, well, I was just gonna say that I think that's what social media should, you know, the I think the original plan for most people getting on social media has always been, you know, like, I just want to be with like minded people, you know, it's, it's, it's better than being in a room f filled with people, because now you can have more people in the conversation. And you don't have to have social anxiety, <laughs> you know? Well, I have, I have social anxiety and everything. I don't know. Have you ever stood up at the urinal and you have performance anxiety about how you're gonna pee? <laughs> it's, you know, it's the worst. Yeah, the guy next to you is like, you know, he's like, he's like pushing out a fire hose for for the pee. <laughs> and you got a trickle. You're like, uh, yeah, a performing here. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 everything is that way. But you know, it's uh, it, you know, it, it's 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 you know, it's cost me you know, to a certain extent. I've had people I sh you know I should never get into. I I, I was a poli sci major. And I love politics. I, I love thinking about principles and political principles. I love thinking about 
uh, I love reading about it. I love doing all that sorts of things. And, you know, there, I, I was better off when I didn't know some of my friends' political leanings. It's just that, you know, I really didn't need to know that some people were, you know, so opposed to me that they would hate me over, over not hating other people enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and the, and, you know, it's, it's 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 two way street on these sorts. As all things in life are, there's you know there's there are trade offs for everything, and uh, and you know it's it's I, I would you know I would still have some friends if I didn't know their their, their politics, and I kind of resent that, and I kind of hate the fact that that I've learned those things, and at the same point in time I wouldn't have anywhere near as many friends if I didn't share the fact that I love stupid things about cars. Right. So. So well, you know it's uh. We've been talking for almost two hours, dude. I know. I told you this would be- it's okay. Look, I don't mind because I can do parts two, three, four, six, nine, fifteen. You know, we could do. You know, I could have ten different. You know, parts to this podcast if I really wanted to. I don't care. Doesn't bother me. All pearly. Yeah, because, all you know, pearly. there might be might be like one person. I think my mother might listen to this. So, <laughs> She'll learn something new about you. Yeah, she will. But. uh but at some point in time, I need to go back to work. Yeah, I was gonna say I I literally just had uh, one other question, and that was that was, or actually two other questions, and that was about it. So okay, go on. Go on. Last or one of the last questions is: How do you feel about the state of the manual gearbox in new cars? It's doomed. Don't don't uh, break my heart. Don't hurt me like that. Look, they're not going to sell any GT three fifties with an automatic, except that. Except that the ten-speed automatic in the, the Ford GM developed is brilliant. So you know, would you would you would you throw away that GT three fifty of yours if it had the ten-speed automatic, which is such a good transmission? Yes, I would. I would not have bought my GT three fifty if it had an automatic. That's true. Okay. I'm a dick. Um, I'm know, a dick when it comes to Matt. I I so the first. Uh, the first manual I ever had was a 2006 Mazda, Mazda speed six. And I bought it in at the end of 2006 going into 2007. And I've not owned an, an automatic gearbox car since. You're, well, you're, you're, you're a purist. Very. But, I mean, there's certain, car, there's, there's certain cars that I hope never have an automatic transmission. Um, I've owned to, I've owned two Honda Civic SIs and you can't buy an SI with an, with an automatic transmission. Right. Okay. And uh, I think the Civic Si, in fact, I think it continues to be one of the very best deals you could possibly get. In oh yes, car. yes. Civic Si, um, which is it's not incredibly fast, but it's fast enough, and it handles well enough, and it's a lot of fun to drive, and it only costs twenty four grand. And it's cheap it's to insure and cheap to put gas in. Yeah, and it's got the great and the good best thing about manual transmissions is there are very few car thieves who know how to drive a manual. Oh, thank God. And, yeah. Um, you know, and but you know, certain cars demand a manual transmission because they are full immersion automobiles. I just had a, um, uh, I, I was just driving a, you know, because you know this is going to sound like a bragging because I'm because it's but it's true. I just had uh, a couple of McLarens and a 911 Turbo S and a Taycan Turbo S, and uh, you know, and the thing is, is that I think the Taycan you can't have an uh, uh, you can't have a manual transmission because it really is. No transmission. There's a single gear lower things. Right. The uh, the the McLarens don't even have a park on their uh, don't even have P on their automatic transmissions. But I don't know if it would be any better because they're pretty good automated manual. And the 911 Turbo S with their new eight speed is pretty good with an automatic. Having said that, I'm about to get I'm getting a 911 a regular 911 
uh, cabriolet here pretty quick, and I think it's going to be a manual, and I really look forward to trying trying it back-to-back. I don't think the GT350 would be any better with a manual. I don't think a, I don't think a ZL1 would be any worse with a is is any worse with an automatic. I don't think a I don't think the uh, I don't think the GT500 would be any better with a manual. Uh, it's just you know it's it's just too much of a torque mount monster the, for the manual to actually matter that much. And you know the the thing it takes for the thing it takes for a manual tra- I, I, and I think I think buying a Miata with a with an automatic track transmission ought to be illegal. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, but at the same point in time, I think that, you know, you take a look at the cars that need, man- and I think it's a shame that Ferrari doesn't sell a manual transmission. As do I. Uh, I, I think that, um, I think that uh, manual transmissions are best with engines that are high revving, mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily thick with torque down low, that really, that really invite you to really get the most out of the car by, by controlling the, by controlling the engine revs. And that's pretty simple. Uh, I don't think the uh, I, you know like you take you take the difference between the GT350 and the GT500. The GT500 is a beast. It's just a stupidly overpowered car, and that it has an automatic transmission. I think it's, I think it's the 10 speed. I don't remember. I haven't driven that car yet, but I've driven other GT500s. It doesn't get any better with a manual transmission, just because. It's not really a real car. It's a, it's an exhibition. It's like the Hellcat. The Hellcat is better with an is better with an automatic than with a manual. But, and because it's just it just is because you can't really do anything with that car except show off. The GT350, you really get something out of it, you know, with a with a manual transmission. The Civic Si really gets something out of it with mm-hmm. a manual transmission. The Miata you get something out of it with a manual transmission. Um, I, I, but you know, a, a 911. I hope you still get something out of it with a manual transmission. The new 911. I've only driven one place. But you know, I hope so. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be too. Uh, but at the same point in time, these are going to be. These are very specialized products. I mean, we're talking. Uh, what do they sell like four thousand GT350s a year? Uh, about that. And yeah, three or four thousand, something like that. And they sell maybe a handful of SIs, and they sell you know. Well, thirty thousand Miatas at night. I think half the Miatas still go out with automatics. So, I mean, I think to, to a certain extent, you have to appreciate them for what they are, which is, you know, uh, a, a very particular market for a very particular people. I don't want my Tundra with a with a manual transmission. I want my Tundra with an automatic. Yeah, it's a yeah. truck. Um, you know, and uh, you know, it's we're we're. I think the I think the manual transmission is going is 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 it's going to survive, but. It, in an ever narrower, in, a, in an ever narrower channel, 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 very small. And I don't think that's, I don't really think that that's all that bad. You know, one of the cars I really think is underrated is a regular GT, a regular Mustang GT, with a manual transmission. It's pretty wonderful. But you know what? Regular man, a regular Mustang GT with a ten-speed automatic is pretty wonderful too. So I actually had uh, before I had this GT three fifty, I had a two thousand fifteen uh, Mustang GT uh, performance pack. Uh, leather Recaro's navigation. It was in guard green, and uh, I sold it to my brother to get the GT350. He sold it to a family friend of ours. The family friend was je- just wrecked it. Uh, somebody ran a red light as he was going through it and hit him, almost T-boned him. It's, it was just just uh, in front of the door, totaled the car, but he and his girlfriend were in the car, no problems. He had uh, a, a burn mark on his wrist from the um, from the airbag, and that was it. 
That was it. Good for him. Yeah, and the car that hit him, he was going 60. The car that hit him was going 60. And Wow, he's like extremely lucky, right? Um but yeah, so to think, I mean, I, the the engineering is great. You know, that car had a manual, it was an amazing car. I miss it. I, I hate that it's wrecked. But I, the last question I have for you, because going, you know, continuing on with new cars, and you drive, you drive everything under the sun, from cheap to to expensive. What is a modern car feature that you hate that you love, and what are some that you love to hate? Okay. I hate automatics. I I hate my, I hate and love to hate the fact that the automatic stop starts on cars. I hate that with a passion. I just I think it it drives me nuts when you when you come up to a stop sign, you stop and the engine shuts down because it, and oftentimes it also shuts off the power steering, which just drives me up the wall. Uh, I I just hate that in, in a car. Uh, I I I thought that I was I thought I was going to hate automatic doors and minivans. Mm. Until I had kids, and now I think automatic tailgates and automatic—you know—the power tailgates, power sliding doors—are the greatest gift to families since the Immaculate Conception two thousand <laughs> years ago. Uh, they are—you uh, know—when I when 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 my kids were born, we bought a um, we bought a uh, a Sienna, and uh, because and the my my wife and I were sitting there and we we're discussing whether or not to get the, the low end model. With uh, you know manual doors, or if we get the high end model, they said well, we literally flipped the coin and we got the high end model. We got the XLE power doors. And after you know a couple of trips to Costco, and a couple of times wandering up to get the kids into the car when they were little kids, you never ex- power window power doors and power of any sort are just godsends. They're great, and I hate the fact that I like the power doors so much because. I should be wanting to be have the, the feel of the can I should. It's, it's such a stupid thing, though. But opening doors never been a thing that I thought of as a great chore. And now suddenly it's like you know when you, once you have the power doors, you want those all the time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand why people who have little kids buy anything except a minivan. I, you know the the the, the thing is is about um, you know except for the stigma of it. Except for the stigma of there is a stigma to having a minivan. The truth of the matter is, is your life is a hundred times easier in a minivan than it is inside an SUV when you have little kids. Vastly easier. And, and much better fuel mileage too. Much better fuel. Just a better vehicle for for, for, for managing a family. Yeah. It, the you know the thing it drives me nuts is as much as I like and and I, I you know if you want to go for a genre that I hate like that I like to hate and hate to like is the uh, is the is the crossover is is that you know. The, for most people, most of the time, a minivan would serve them so much better. Right. And and you know and you know the, the all that is is that for most for the most parts, is a, a crossover is just a disguised minivan. I mean, literally, in the case of like the Honda Pat, uh, the the Honda um, pilot, oh, Honda the pi- Pilot, yeah, Pilot is an Odyssey with regular doors. That's what it is. And you know, I don't understand. Why you go into your you go into your Honda dealer and you say, well, I got a four year old, a six year old, and I got another one on the way, and I want a pilot. When I can go, I got a four and a six year old, another one on the way, and I can have an Odyssey. Buy the damn Odyssey. Just do yourself a favor. That's how I feel about station wagons. Regarding when people always say they want crossovers, I'm going, why? Why don't you just buy the station wagon? 
Save yourself some damn money and shut up. It doesn't, you know, the station wagon will do everything that the that little tiny crossover will do. And there's really only one crossover that I'm like, it it gets a pass for me. I mean, I, look, crossovers are here. They're not going away anytime soon. Car companies can make way too much money off of them. And I hate that. But also the only, like the one that really is okay with me is the Mazda CX-5. Yeah. Mazda, right now, all the entire Mazda line is, I think, impressive. It's just, what's, what's really impressive to me about Mazda is they aren't selling them. Yeah, because right. But you know, it's 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 uh, it's interesting. Is when when the when the minivan supplanted the uh, supplanted the uh, the SC, the station wagon back mm-hmm. in the '80s. The reason was is because minivans were better than station wagons in fundamental ways. They're, they really made more sense in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. It was a, there was a way to objectively say. The minivan is better than the station wagon. I can't the the, the, suppl- the supplementing of essentially you know crossovers has supplanted both the sedan and the and the, and the minivan, and they have no practical advantages. You know the thing is, is they are they are completely a, a psychological improvement. They they what they do is they appeal to people on a psychological level. They don't appeal to them on on a practical level because they're no better than a sedan and they're no better than a station wagon. So what it is is that they just like it's it's the form factor that they like. They like the fact that it looks a little bit more adventurous, a little bit more outdoorsy. Uh, it has, but it's nothing. It's completely psychological. It's not practical. The minivan had practical advantages. The only advantages the crossover have are psychological. Right. And uh, you know, to me, it's it's mass hysteria. It's cats sleeping with dogs. It's uh, it's it's the end of the universe as we know it. And a good way to end the question and our and our, our end our conversation before I go nuts. I really appreciate you spending you know like almost three hours with me, and I will uh, I will definitely talk to you later, man. Have a good day. Bye right, bye. All right, bye. So that was very interesting, wasn't it? I think Pearlie's an interesting guy. Uh, he's a one interesting fellow to talk to. Uh, I mainly just talked to him on Facebook, um, but yeah, hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, again, I know it was a longer podcast as well. I know all these podcasts have been a little bit long for some people's taste, but for me, I, I want to get, I want to allow people to, to be able to say anything they want. Just talk, just talk and not worry about, uh, not worry about, you know, time limits or commercial breaks or anything of the sort. Now, obviously at some point, the Raw Autos podcast will in fact feature advertisements and, and marketing and all that good stuff. Uh, but for right now, it's just about getting the content out there to you guys and making sure you guys have something to listen to, uh, even if it's just one of you listening or 10 of you listening or a thousand, you know, I, it, it doesn't matter. It's about making sure that the people who are listening have quality content uh, and and get something out of it. I think there's a lot to be learned as well. Um, I feel like most of the people that I've talked to now and, and believe it or not, I've actually interviewed seven people so far. So this is the third podcast and I got four more uh, people to, uh, to put up on there and I have a few more people lined up. I'll surprise you with those later. Uh, but you know, with pretty much everybody, it's been a very similar thing of like they were in a, a dead end job or they were doing something that they just, they just didn't care about doing it. It didn't mean anything to them. It wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't heartfelt for them. And they got into writing about cars and because they love it, because they appreciate it. And I think that's a, that's such an important thing is to, you know, follow your dreams and, and feel good about yourself. 
you know, being able to look at yourself in the mirror at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day and being comfortable with who you are or the place you are in life, you know? So some, some people that I, uh, that, uh, that I've already interviewed that I've talked to, uh, that you'll, some of them you'll hear next week. Uh, my buddy, Rob Basil, one of my closest and best friends, dearest friends. He was in my wedding. I was in his wedding. And, uh, I think he's a very interesting character. Um, he had a, he recently sold his 1950 Cadillac series 62, but he does that. He kind of, you know, he rebuilt, um, as much as he could. And then he also has a 1956, uh, Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful car. And, uh, he is a, uh, mechanic, uh, for classic cars, uh, mainly. So, uh, he actually, um, is a contract worker for people who need to, rebuild, restore, or resto mod their, uh, their classic cars. And, uh, very interesting stories that, that Rob and I get into. Um, and then that, so that'll be coming up on Monday on Wednesday of next week, uh, will be the extremely interesting Johnny Lieberman, the uh, senior editor of motor trend magazine. I'm sure you've, you know, some of you have heard of him. And then next Friday, Jamie Kitman, the amazing writer from Automobile Magazine, New York Times, Car Talk, all that good stuff. And then the following Monday will be John Volker, who is pretty much kind of like the, you know, quote unquote, green car expert of sorts uh, when it comes to EVs and hybrids and plug-in hybrids. And John and I actually, I think that's the longest podcast I'll have so far. He's about two hours long. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there are great stories to be, to be heard with all these people and I hope you enjoy them. I hope you are enjoying them now. Uh, and I hope you continue to stick around and let people know and, and, uh, people that enjoy a long form conversation where people just have the ability to, uh, to, to sit and listen, you know? Um, and, and I give people the ability to just talk, rant, rave, do whatever they want. Um, yeah. So until next time, which will be Monday, uh, what is Monday's date? What the 6th, April 6th? Yeah. Monday, April 6th, 2020. Remember, continue to wash your hands, stay away from people that you love. Uh, and also now the, uh, the white house is saying that maybe we should think about wearing some type of cloth over our face, over our mouths as we're going out into the world to, uh, to help other people. So continue to do that. Um, continue to stay indoors, uh, quarantine yourself, uh, even if you're not sick, because you don't know if you're a carrier, you don't know what you're, what you have going on in your body. And in the meantime, listen to the Relatives podcast, share it with everybody, uh, subscribe on Apple podcasts, please subscribe to raw autos on YouTube, uh, and then Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, you know, like us all there and everything so on and so forth. I will see you guys Monday. Well, I will talk to you guys on Monday, April 6th. Thank you very much. Happy motoring.